Good morning, Woodland Hills. My name is Dan Kent. I'm a teaching pastor here. Thank you for joining us, and uh, thank you for your support. And also, thank you for investing your attention in uh, Woodland Hills services every Sunday. Uh, I hope that uh, I will be able to give you a good return on your investment this morning. Let me just say that uh, the, the worship earlier today and um, Oshida's message about Thomas, uh, it, it fits so perfect with what I have to say. And someday, if we get to know each other better, I have a funny story about the song Amazing Grace, too, but I can't share that here. I have to uh, get serious. So let me talk about Happy Meals. That's how I want to start. Uh, I loved Happy Meals when I was a kid, and I'm sure you've had a Happy Meal. Most Americans have had a Happy Meal. And when I had them, I was probably in fourth or fifth grade, and we worked on this farm. My mom married into a family that had a vegetable farm. And we would work all day in the summertime in the sun. And we would pick vegetables. We'd pick cucumbers and tomatoes. And we'd carry these big bushels of tomatoes from the wash house to the truck and back and forth and all that kind of stuff. It was just really beautiful summer labor, farm labor, you know. And then after a long day of hard work, my mom would buy my brothers and my sister Jill and I a Happy Meal. And it was just such a great experience because, well, I mean, first of all, the cheeseburger is just fatty and salty and delicious, and it just kind of melts in your mouth. And, and not only that, though, but it's, it's wrapped like a present. <laughs> and so you have to unwrap the cheeseburger, and, then, uh, and that cheeseburger then is put inside of this colorful box. And there's oftentimes cartoon characters or superheroes on it. And then you get the cold, fizzy soda. And if that wasn't enough, there's also some type of toy inside. I mean... Can you believe this place? As a kid, it was almost like a little mini Christmas, you know? And you don't even have to get, you don't even have to get out of your car. You just drive through the drive-thru, and you get this little mini Christmas, and it was wonderful. And I just remember thinking, what a great place. You know, as a kid, because so many places, they don't care about kids. As, you know, they're for adults only, you know, bars and, and you know, Denny's and stuff like that. It's like, that's not fun for kids. But McDonald's, look at how much care they took in showing kids how important they were. And uh, I just remember thinking, wow, that's, that's amazing. About 10 years ago, I, I was just doing some research on this, and about 10 years ago, it seems like there were some class action lawsuits uh, hurled against McDonald's for Happy Meals. And the accusation was that uh, McDonald's, through Happy Meals, they were doing manipulative marketing. They were trying to get kids hooked on unhealthy food uh, so that they would have a lifetime, uh, lifetime addiction to this unhealthy food. Uh, the accusations were so credible, in fact, that Disney actually pulled their brand from McDonald's. Uh, to McDonald's' credit, they worked really hard to kind of improve the health of their Happy Meals, and Disney is now working with McDonald's again. But it just kind of shows that What's going on here? Because if you remember, the tobacco industry was also accused of marketing to kids. And, um, and you can't watch a cartoon without seeing four or five commercials for sugary cereals. And, and even Apple, uh, they've been accused lately of doing manipulative things with their apps to get kids hooked on their technology products. And so there, there's just something going on about marketing to kids. And it, it, it all kind of reminds me of this quote by Albert Camus. And Camus, he was a, an atheist, and his kind of 
goal in this book. It's called The Myth of Sisyphus. His goal is to find out whether or not life can be meaningful without God. And part of this, there's just all sorts of profundity in this book, but in this quote, he says this, and this has just stuck with me for so long. Uh, I think about this all the time. He says that one of the problems of, of being a human is that we get into the habit of living before we acquire the habit of thinking. <laughs> and what he's saying there is that by the time we develop the skill at introspection, at rational thought, at being able to determine the pros and cons of a choice in order, you know, before we can even decide, hey, this might be risky, before we develop those skills, man, we've already chosen a whole bunch of choices. We already have this huge inertia of preferences, of habits, of tendencies. We've already developed tastes for foods. We've developed ways of dealing with our emotions. We've probably inherited all sorts of judgments about certain types of people from our family. When we're at our most vulnerable, when we're least prepared, the world hits us with all sorts of stuff. When we're just little kids, and you've seen kids, they're just these little malleable bundles of potential. You know, they're like, they're like little orbs of hot magma. They could still be shaped into anything. And that's when the world just seems to hit us and starts to shape us. And we don't even know that we're already being shaped when we're that young. And it's dangerous because some of those things that we bring in, they can be dangerous in the long run. Uh, Greg has said this. I think Heraclitus said it also, but I'm going to give Greg credit. Uh, he says that we start out making choices, but eventually our choices make us. And what he means by that is that when I make a choice, every little choice I make sort of shapes me a little bit more. And then that new shape that I have, I bring into my next choice. And that shape biases my next choice, which then reinforces that shape. And that cycle continues, and we start to solidify a character, and we start to get less and less free in our decisions because our characters sort of decide for us. These little choices that we make, they can have huge, huge consequences over the course of a lifetime. Uh, or as the Bible puts it, God said, I have set before you life and death blessings and curses. Choose life. In other words, the little choices that we make, they can have life or death consequences. Uh, I, I like how the book of Sirach says it. Uh, and, and Sirach is just a, it's a, a, a Jewish writing that, that took place between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, but Sirach puts it this way, I have placed before you fire and water. Stretch out your hand for whichever you choose. And when you hear that, when God says, which one do you want, fire or water, it seems like a no-brainer. Duh, we're going to choose the water. Of course we're going to choose the water. <laughs> and yet, so often, we choose the fire. It's such an obvious choice, but we choose wrong. We want the water. We're very thirsty, but we choose the fire. And I think that's because all of these habits, the addictions that we have, the character that we've developed, all of our insecurities, they sort of warp our experience of the world. They distort everything and we end up in this sort of strange dystopian realm where the fire looks a lot like water to us and so we drink it and, of course, we get burned. The more we act from this type of distorted perspective, it can have even more distorted effects to the extent that John says this, we deceive ourselves and the truth is no longer in us. And the more we operate from that perspective where the truth is no longer in us, 
we start to lose control over our decisions more and more. Even to the point where the Apostle Paul says in Romans, I do not do the good things that I want to do, but the evil things that I do not want to do, that's what I end up doing. And it's frustrating. It's almost as if there's something else acting within me. We make choices, and then our choices make us. The bundles of hot magma that we once were starts to cool and take shape. And we realize at some point that we've been self-carving statues all this time. So what do we do? How do we work ourselves out of this distortion? How can we make the fire look like fire again and the water look like water? What I want to propose is the answer largely has to do with confession. Uh, A habitual, consistent lifestyle of truthful confession to yourself, to God, and to each other. There's something about confession that reverses this curse, that reverses this distortion. James says this in James 5.16. He says, confess your sins. Why? So that you may be healed. There's something about truthful confession that heals us. David even said this in the psalm. He said that, When I refused to confess, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Holding on, suppressing those truths that we need to confess had physical consequences for David. I really think that that the Catholic Church had something right when when they made confession a core part of their faith. Uh, In the Catholic Church historically, not so much in the last 30 years or so, but historically, confession has always been a core part of what it means to be a Catholic. And it was a regular part of the weekly routine would be to go and confess in private uh, in the church. And the church had special areas, confessional booths, just for that. Now, of course, like anything, it can become shallow and ritualistic and meaningless. But the idea and the emphasis, I think, is so right because there's something about articulating what we've done, putting what we've said or thought into words that I think can heal us. It makes these abstract things tangible and undeniable to us, and that makes them actionable, ultimately. It's not a one-time thing, of course. It's not like, you know, you go in and you confess, and then, poof, you're a butterfly. I mean, it's nothing like that, of course. It's, it's more of a cumulative thing, you know, with, with like each truthful confession, uh, it sort of chips away at something. It, it, it stokes this hot core of possibility that's still inside of us. It, uh, it kind of taps into our magma, <laughs> if you will. It, it kind of slowly starts to soften our stone. And that means that we can slowly start to reshape ourselves into who we want to be and who God wants us to be. If the Apostle John is right, that we chronically deceive ourselves until the truth is no longer in us, well, then the antidote to that is to chronically begin confessing truthfully. If, if chronic deception is the problem, chronic truth, truthfulness is the solution. Uh, and if that's the case, if confession, if a, if a lifestyle of confession softens our stone so that we can be reshaped into who God wants us to be, well, that means that confession is really sort of like a superpower. It really is this incredibly high-leverage power that we have over our lives. And it's no wonder, then, that Satan hurls so many obstacles to truthful confession. We don't like to confess truthfully, and there's all sorts of obstacles that get in the way. In fact, I would argue that there's a lot of people who think they've been confessing when they haven't. There might be people who have never confessed once in their entire life. 
Uh, and that's because a lot of times when we think we're confessing, we're actually doing something else. Let me give you a couple examples. The first one, I'm sorry. That's not a confession. It's, not a, it's a lament. It's an emotion. It's really good. It's good to be sorry when we do something wrong, but it's not yet confession. The whole point here, of course, is that we will... Um, Oh, shoot, I missed something that I should have said at the beginning. <laughs> Too late now. We're going forward. But the whole point of all this is that we want to reconcile with our brothers and sisters. And uh, in order to do that, we need to have sorrow when we do something wrong. Uh, but then we need to confess. And then we need to repent. And somehow that process is what leads to reconciliation. So sorrow is definitely an important part of that, but it's not yet confession. I understand, though, why people get this confused. Because... You know, a lot of us were raised with parents who emphasized being sorry. Like, say you're sorry, and you've probably heard that in, in your household. Say you're sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, you can go out and play now. As if that was the magic word. I said I was sorry, now I'm off the hook. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card. In a lot of families, that's, what, that's all you need to do is say you're sorry. And you see that in adults, too, where you say, hey, what are you doing? And they say, I said I was sorry, as if that was Okay but they haven't yet actually confessed. Or the worst, and you've probably experienced this, and this is just maddening, is when you confront somebody and you say, you know, when we were in that meeting and you said that thing about my project, boy, that really made me feel lousy. And they say, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> it's just this horrible bait and switch. It's like, no, I, I was talking about what you did, not about my feeling. And I was hoping for something like, I'm sorry, I can see why what I said made you feel that way. I didn't mean it that way. That's what I was hoping for. I wasn't hoping for sorrow about my feeling. And, uh, but that's where I'm sorry is not yet the confession. It's something else. Uh, another example of something that's not a confession is uh, something like this. I'm a terrible person. That's not a confession. That is a self-judgment. Uh, it, to, to give an example of this, imagine I've got a couple friends, Todd and Margo, and uh, Margo got a new car. And so she's been just driving all over the place, just driving silly. She loves her new car. She's going to visit all of her friends. And she's been to Todd's house like two times a week. And, uh, and every time she comes over to Todd's house, she squeals into the driveway. And if Todd is lucky, half of the car is in the driveway. The other half is usually on his lawn. Uh, but sure enough, here comes Margo. She squeals into the driveway, and uh, she gets out. Todd's standing there at the top of the driveway waving to, to Margo, and Margo gets out and says, Todd, it's so good to see you. And Todd says, Margo, I'm so glad that you came. And he looks down, and sure enough, there's, there's her wheel right on his lawn. And so Todd says to Margo, he says, um, hey, you know, every time you come over, a lot of times you park on my lawn. I just got new sod. And so when you come over next time, could you just try to keep the car on the driveway? And Margo, and you might have experienced this, Margo responds by saying, ah, oh, I'm just, I suck. I'm a terrible person. I don't deserve friends. I should have never been born. And she gets in her car and she squeals off. And maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've been Margo. I probably have a couple times in my life. What is going on there? Todd is standing there wondering, uh, I just, 
I just didn't want tire tracks in my lawn. That's all I cared about. I, I didn't want to cause this explosive reaction in my friend. And, uh, and she's obviously, she feels terrible and she's beating herself up, but that's not what Todd wanted. All Todd wanted was, oh gosh, I didn't even notice I was doing that. I need to pay more attention. Next time I promise I'll pay more attention when I park. That's all Todd wanted, but instead he got this huge explosive response. What the heck is going on there? Uh, I think... What's probably going on with that is that we have these bad concepts of confession that we inherit and that we pick up along the way in our life. And, and I think it has to do with this idea that good confession is somehow self-punishing. That is, somehow, if I feel really bad about myself, that somehow compensates for the really bad thing that I did. In fact, uh, a lot of monks would, would kind of incorporate this into their, into their ministry and in their faith. That, uh, there's like these things called, I think they're uh, uh, siluses, and they're like these metal straps with little barbs on them, and they put them around their legs so that when they walk, it would cause blood. And that pain is sort of like they deserve that because of the horrible sin that they've committed. And it's just a, what a messed up understanding of confession. Confession is not about self-punishment. Confession is always empowering. Because good confession is going to show you clearly what was done so that now it can be dealt with and it can hopefully even be healed. The final uh, example of something that's not confession is this. I'm a sinner. (laughs) It's not a confession. It's a philosophy of self. It's a a totally different thing. Uh, A confession would be something like this. My coworkers raised $1,000 for homeless kids and I took it. And I took it and I gambled it away at the casino. That's a confession. I'm a sinner is not a confession. An example of a confession might be something like this. I snuck into the junior high art room and I stole a big brown block of clay. And then I took that clay and I shaped it into a big brown turd. And then I jammed that big brown turd in the toilet in the boys' bathroom. And the plumber had to come and fix it. That's a confession. Mr. Metcalf, I swear it wasn't me, though. <laughs> it was not, I got in trouble for it, but it wasn't me. I wish it was me because it was genius. Uh, I think, between you and me, I think it was Mike Corbeck because he was the smartest kid I knew and he had a great sense of humor. So that's, that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, and so that's sort of like, can you see how those things, like I'm a sinner, I'm a terrible person, uh, those aren't confessions. There's something else going on there. So what is a good confession? I want to talk about what a good confession is in three stages. Uh, so basically three steps for a good confession. The first step is to remove all global claims, remove all abstractions, all these I am this. Just get rid of all that. You don't, you don't need that. What, what can happen is that when we say things like I am a sinner, uh, we can actually procrastinate real confession. We can say, I'm a sinner, with great drama and with great melodrama even, and we can say that all day long and never actually confront any sinful behavior. We can never, we could do that and never confront, this is what I did. And that's what confession needs, is you need to know exactly what was done. And really, when you say I'm a sinner, what you're really saying is I'm just a normal person because we believe that we're all sinners. So a confession of being I'm a sinner doesn't say anything unique about you. But a confession is all about what's unique about you. A confession is all about this is what I did. And, and when I confront somebody and I, and I say, hey, this, you really made me feel bad when you said this, and they say, ah, I'm such a sinner, 
There's nothing to repent of there. There's, there's no healing from that because we're all sinners. And so it kind of leaves us no place different than where we were. Real confession is about getting real and tangible about what we did as individuals. So you have to just remove all that global stuff. The second phase or stage of good confession is to get detailed. And this is the most important part. The name of the sermon is uh, Living in High Definition. And that's because of this. If, if you only take one thing away from this sermon, or really any sermon I've ever given, <laughs> I don't know, that might be too bold of a claim, but for sure this sermon, take this. Get detailed. When you confess, get specific and articulate, this is what I did, this is what I said, this is what I thought that was wrong. And uh, the more detailed you get, the better. Because it's in the details, that's where our power is. It's details that are empowering. And I think I can prove this to you. Imagine, imagine this situation, okay? I'm standing in my bedroom. I'm just standing there, probably daydreaming or something, and, and I get an urgent text from a friend. And, uh, and, and the text says, Dan, this is urgent. Okay, it has my attention. There is a tarantula in your bedroom on the wall by your light switch. And I look up, and there by the light switch is this black orb of pure evil and it's got eight legs. And sure enough, I don't know how he knew, but he knew that the tarantula was right there. Now that's terrifying. I may never sleep in this room again. That's how terrified I am. But do you know what's even scarier than that? Is if you replay this, and the text message says this instead, Dan, there is a tarantula someplace in your house. <laughs> that's really scary, because now I'm not going anywhere, because that thing could be anywhere in the house. I'm going to just stand there and pee my pants, because I don't know what else to do. At least when I knew that the spider was on the wall by the light switch, I could do something. I'm going to pee my pants and then jump out the window. I'm not going to go through the door because that thing can jump. I'm going out the window. Can you see by having that detail of knowing exactly where it is, now I can strategize. But when it's somewhere in the house, I can't go anywhere. I can't go out the window because he might have his ghastly web in the window. I can't do that. And so I'm powerless until the house burns down. Uh, but when I get those details, that's when I can act. Details are where our power is. One more example of this. Consider having two friends, okay? And the three of you are praying together. And your first friend prays like this. He says, Lord, I am a hopeless sinner. I am nothing. Desperately wicked and a pathetic stain on your great creation. You may have heard people pray like this. It's a very religiously sounding prayer in some cultures, in some circles. But compare it to this other prayer from your other friend. Forgive me, Father, for my recklessness with money. I blew my entire paycheck on new clothes. I get a little cash and I seem to lose my mind. I get stressed, I buy things, and it never seems to help. That's a very different prayer. And ask yourself this question. If you compare these two prayers, if you compare these two prayers, ask yourself this. Which one of these friends could you offer help to? I'm going to suggest that there's nothing you can do about your first friend. There's nothing you can help with hopeless sinner. There's no help you can give to a pathetic stain. But to your friend who gets stressed and buys things, well, now you can do something about that. You can ask questions. Why do you get stressed? What's your situation like that's causing this stress? Uh, what are some other ways that you can deal with that stress? Could you have a stress-spending budget? I mean, the 
opportunities and the options are endless. But now, because you have these details, you can actually do something. So many times confessions that I hear lack details. And that is where our power is. The third stage to effective confession is this. Seek out the wise. And I don't mean W-I-S-E, although that's good too. Seek out wise people for sure. What I'm saying is to seek out the W-H-Y. That is, why did I do that? What is the motivation for my behavior? And, and what I mean is like, okay, this is what I did. And you articulate and you say, you're confessing, this is what I did, said, or thought. Okay, now start to ask the question, why did you do that? And of course, we're all super complex people. And we're not going to be able to uncover all of our motivations because we're just too complex. And sometimes the motivations aren't that complicated. Sometimes, like for me, uh, peanut M&Ms... <laughs> I can't have too many P&Ms around in the house because I'll eat them all. I won't stop until they're gone. And that's not because of some dark childhood event. It's just because I think they're really flipping good. And I put two in my mouth and I drink some water and I just feel them dissolve in my mouth and it's just, it's, it's heavenly. It's, it's triggering my dopamine in all the right ways, you know? But sometimes there are whys behind our, our behaviors. There are motivations that we don't even know are motivating our behaviors. And I tell you what, if you can get good at detecting those motivations, you can bring them out to the light and now you can start to diffuse these things. Like maybe you might have treated somebody in a certain way because you're envious of their success. Uh, or maybe you get frustrated because things didn't go the way you expected. And I see this a lot where people, they don't even know why they're disappointed and, and when they press into it a little bit, they realize that they expected an event, a family gathering, a wedding or whatever to go different and it didn't go that way. And, and they don't even know why they're frustrated until they realize, oh, I was expecting something else. And now they can see the motivations of their frustrations. And sometimes it can get deeper than that. Um, you know, working with depressed uh, people for 20-some years, one thing that I notice about people who are chronically depressed is a lot of times they will have traumatic events in their childhood. You know, divorce or an, some type of tragedy or abuse. And, and what I found with some patients is that they kind of get in these, these traps and they don't even realize that they're trapping themselves. And when I press them on this, I'll ask them, I'll say, you know, what would it mean for you if you were a happy person? What would that say about you? What would that say about the traumatic event that you experienced? And in working with people, and this isn't like a, you know, a one-time thing, this is people that I've worked with for a while, what I find is that what they, what they believe, and they don't even know that they believe this, but what they believe is that if they were to be happy, that would mean that the trauma wasn't that big of a deal. Can you see how that's a trap? That means that they have no permission to be happy because if they were happy, that would diminish the, the injustice that they experienced. And so now they're trying to maintain this chronic depression just to maintain the injustice before God and before others and before themselves. So they know that that was wrong and they didn't deserve that. That was not fair. That was not right. And in order to prove how injustice is, they're going to continue to be miserable uh, because that was so horrible. And when they realize that they've trapped themselves like that, now they can start to question and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, is that true? Is it true that if you were happy, that would mean that the injustice was less just? No, it wouldn't. You could be the happiest person in the world and the injustice that you experienced is still horrible and God hates it. 
God hates it and he, and he despises that that happened to you, even though you're happy. We see this even in Jesus. Jesus, of course, being uh, the only innocent person who was crucified unjustly, uh, experienced this horrendous injustice, this torturous injustice, yet when he comes back with his disciples, he parties with them. He celebrates with them. He shares meals with them. Uh, and, and yet sometimes people get trapped like this. And can you see how discovering these little traps, these little motivations behind your behavior can be really liberating for people? Uh, it's in those types of whys, those types of motivations. It's in the whys that Satan hides his lies, is what I would say. Uh, it's in the whys that Satan hides his lies. So it pays big dividends if we can get good at uncovering the motivations of our behaviors. Uh, but we, we got to get in there, though. We got to, you know, get our headlamp and our pickaxe, and we got to get down in there and start to uncover these things. We have to get good at that. We have to uh, look at events that we've, that we've participated in, things that we've said, things that we've did that maybe we're not happy about, and we just have to explore, like, what was I hoping to get out of that thing that I said? Uh, or what was I hoping to get out of that thing that I did? What emotions did I carry into that? And where did those emotions come from? And, and you can start to kind of pick through that and start to find little sneaky things that can uh, pay big dividends if you can uncover them and expose them to the light. And definitely uh, a therapist is really helpful at this because they can see things that you've kind of gone blind to. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like when you go to somebody's house and you smell their house and they don't because they're just kind of nose blind to it. Our life is like that too. Having a good counselor where you can talk to them, they can start to see things that maybe you can't see anymore. Really, in the same way that a doctor who writes a prescription, their prescription is only going to be good if their diagnosis is good. So too, a confession is really all about a good diagnosis of what I did, said, or thought. And so in order for us to repent well, which is sort of our prescription, we have to get good at diagnosing well. And so we have to get good at confessing accurately. We have to admit our guilt uh, and we have to articulate what we did clearly and what we said and what we thought. And the clearer we can articulate that, the better it's going to be when we move on to repentance. How did we violate the law of love? And then why did we do that? That's all part of, of a good confession. But more than just like an episode, more than just like one event, I believe that confession is also sort of like a lifestyle. Uh, it's sort of a lifestyle of, of truth-telling about ourselves. It's, it's sort of like embracing our whole self, uh, our, our good qualities, our bad qualities, our strengths, our weaknesses, our assets, our liabilities, all of that, and being aware of our whole self and living from that. Uh, Greg has, has preached about walking in truth. And the word truth there in Greek is aletheia, which literally means walking unconcealed. Now, it doesn't mean go walk around naked, all right? Uh, when we come back here May 2nd, I don't want to see a bunch of naked people. Or that's not what that means. What that means is that we stop pretending to be something that we're not. We just live as we actually are uh, more and more and more. Because real community, which God is calling us to, requires authenticity. And a community can only be as effective as the people are authentic. Uh, the, the passage I shared earlier from James 5.16, the whole passage says this, confess your sins to each other that you may be healed. That is, have this authenticity toward one another. And being authentic to one another, that's where the healing really 
comes in. And it's so sad because it seems like authenticity is really hard to find in the world. But tragically, it's especially hard to find a lot of times in churches. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, he sort of concludes his book with this point that we haven't really ever broken through to good community yet. And he says this, the final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though we have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, we do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner, so everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. And so we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. Man, I think there's something right about Bonhoeffer, what Bonhoeffer is saying there. I mean, there's something about church that, that we feel like we need to be more holy than we are. And it's easy for us to become a holy club and, and to orient ourselves around the ideals of the New Testament. Uh, and we feel pressure to be holier than we really are. Uh, but God doesn't meet us at these ideals. God meets us in the actual. God meets us as we actually are at the bottom. And, and this is key because relationships can only feed us the way they're meant to to the extent that we are authentic with one another. Uh, if you're pretending to be something that you're not, and we all do, I mean, this is something that we all have to work on, but the extent to which you're pretending to be something that you're not, even if you're really good at that, if you're really good at pretending to be something that you're not and it's effective and people just love this person that you're pretending to be, it doesn't feed you the way it's supposed to. Because you know that all of this love and all of this affection that your avatar is getting, you know that that's not you. And so it doesn't actually feed your heart. And there's still a hollowness there that should not be there. Uh, alcoholics know this well. Uh, AA talks about this dual life that, that an alcoholic will live where they, they keep their alcohol use in secret and then they go about living their life as if they have it all together. And they go to work and they go to church and they go to family functions and everybody thinks, boy, what a great, uh, what a great citizen. What a great model of faith. And, and they, they heap praise on them, but that praise doesn't do anything because the person knows about this secret life that they have. And what happens over time is this life out here at church and at work and family, it becomes less and less real because it's fake and, and it feeds them less and less and less. And while that's happening, the alcohol life gets more and more and more real because that's more authentic. And so the goal of confession is to get this hidden stuff uh, into the open, at least to yourself, at least to God, and hopefully to people who you love. See, because I think a confession lifestyle where we are uh, speaking truthfully and, and we're getting detailed about what we're doing and who we are, I think that that starts to chip away at the superficial uh, facade that we all have. And, and the more we chip away at that facade, the more our real self is exposed to the world. But more than that, the more authenticity that we are able to show other people, that gives other people permission to then be real with us. And, and really, each time that we confess, it sort of sends this signal like, you know, it's okay to not be perfect. We're all trying to be Christ-like, but we don't all have to be Jesus yet. It's okay if we're not Jesus yet. We're all going that direction, but this is where we are. A confession lifestyle sends the signal that there's no reason to hide, uh, that we can be known as we are. 
And it's only when we are known as we are that we can be nourished and maybe even healed. When we make confession, the way I've articulated here, I believe, when we make this a habitual part of our life, I think it has an exponential effect. I think that we slowly but surely, we start to see fire as fire and water as water again. And that means that over the course of life, we get burned less and less and we get nourished more and more. Uh, if this message is, is uh, striking a chord with you and you want to talk more about it, uh, we have gathering groups that meet throughout the week. Uh, also, the MuseCast on Tuesday, we're going to dig deeper into this message. And also, if you have something that you would like to confess uh, or if you need prayers for something, we have people who would love to pray with you right now. So uh, definitely take advantage of that. Again, thank you so much for investing your attention with us. I, I, I pray that this, this message blesses you, and um, I can't wait to see you in person on May 2nd. Hopefully that will happen. And uh, have a blessed week, everybody.